All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness, and thank you for your word and for your love and just all of your, all of who you are, Lord. And thank you that you give us this instruction now through your word that you penned so many years ago, and you've been so diligent to preserve these words so that we could just even just casually open them up and sit them on our laps and read them and hear from you. But Lord, we don't take it lightly. And so we thank you for the privilege of reading your word together, and we pray you just speak to our hearts and have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us by your spirit, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 24. Lord willing, today we're going to read 24 and 25. All right. Everybody good with that? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to give us a little background, a little overview. Okay. Uh, we got a sort of historical context, right, in the book of Jeremiah. And if you're anything like me, uh, these, all these Jehoiah whatevers kind of run together, right? And so we know that uh, after the reign of Solomon during the time of his son Rehoboam, the nation of Israel was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. By this time in history that we're reading about now, uh, the northern kingdom has been taken off by the Assyrians about 150 years prior. And now we're in the final stages of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And we know that the last good king of the nation of Judah was by the name, a man by the name of what? Josiah, right? Right there. It just gives me an opportunity to pull out my, my laser pointer, and I give credit to Jerry that uh, he gave me this laser pointer a few years ago, and I just, it just feels like school. Doesn't it feel like school if you do that, right? <laughs> doesn't, make any, doesn't make Josiah any more clear to anybody, but it makes me feel better. And also, it kind of brings up opportunity to remind you that if anybody falls asleep, you know, I can shine this thing in your light, which, in your, in your eyes, I mean, you know, so... You know, does this thing penetrate your eyelids if you're asleep and go directly to your eyeball? Maybe, maybe not. You don't know. So anyway, um, Josiah was the last good king of Judah. Josiah had three sons. Jehoahaz, also called Shalom, uh, and then Jehoiakim the second, and then Zedekiah the third. And Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin. He's also called Jeconiah and sometimes Coniah for short. Okay, And the reason that, that I kind of like to highlight this is because in a lot of ancient literature, and particularly in the book of Jeremiah as we see it played out, you know, we're used to reading things chronologically. This happened, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And Jeremiah doesn't do that. He kind of, um, because he's sort of prophesying, and partly I think because God is out, he's speaking, you know, the words of God, and God is outside of space and time, God sees a picture that's not quite as chronological as we see. And so uh, he kind of flips back and forth a little bit. And uh, like, for example, uh, chapter 24 uh, is earlier. Uh, Chapter 25 is a different... No, I'm sorry. Chapter 24 is later. Chapter 25 then is earlier. And so uh, these two chapters don't quite go chronological. Now, specifically, Jehoahaz, he reigned for three months. Now, this may be more than you care to know, but during the time of Josiah, there's sort of a power struggle going on between Egypt, sort of uh, think of Egypt to the south um, west, and you think of Babylon to the northeast. Okay, and there's a power struggle between these two empires, and uh, actually, literally, Josiah was killed by the Egyptians, uh, sort of inadvertently, because the Egyptians were coming across to do battle with the Babylonians in in sort of a neutral middle place, which happened to be the nation of Israel, and Josiah comes out there, kind of picking a fight with anybody that's going to be passing through his land, and and he winds up getting killed, and. Um, and so during that era, if you will, there's sort of this power thing. So Josiah is killed by the king of Egypt, uh, who is kind of the dominant empire at the time. The king of Egypt places his son, his, uh, Josiah's son Jehoahaz in place there, but he's only there for three months. And then uh, he's taken off to Egypt, and then Jehoiakim is placed 
on the throne, but at the time he's placed as sort of a, a puppet king of the nation of Egypt. Okay, well, he's there for 11 years. And during that 11-year time, there becomes a transition of a power struggle between Egypt and Babylon. Babylon kind of takes power over Egypt. And next thing you know, Jehoiakim is still there, but he's, a power, he's kind of a puppet king of the Babylonians now. Does that make sense? He's there for 11 years. And during that time that he becomes puppet king of, Bab- of the Babylonians, part of what the Babylonians do is they haul off, they kind of conquer Judah at that time and kind of exert, exert their force over them and haul off a bunch of captives. And Daniel is one of the captives. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all go off, and that's in 605 B.C. during the reign of Jehoiakim. And the reason that we kind of bring this up a little bit for background, is there's going to be a lot. There's going to be three different times that Babylon ships off a bunch of slaves to Babylon, kind of basically captives. Okay, and the final of the three times is during the reign of Zedekiah, and at that time Zedekiah is killed, and um, and Jerusalem is totally conquered. That's in 586 BC. So think of this as there's three different types, three different times when the Babylonians come and sort of take conquest of, of Judah and take away captives. The first is 605 BC, uh, the second is 597 BC, and the third is 586 BC, if you care. Uh, but that's during these guys. And so the reason I bring this up is like uh, chapter 24, verse 1, the Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. So what you see then is after Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, now we're talking about the reign of Zedekiah. And so chapter 24, verse 1 sets us in the state of, uh, of 597 B.C. and um, the reign of, Je- of Zedekiah. Does that make sense? Clear as mud? You want to go through that again? Fostering a culture of honesty here at the church. So this first verse, the Lord showed me there were two baskets of figs. And this two baskets of figs was during the time of Zedekiah, now the vassal king of Babylon. And part of what I want us to kind of get in mind here is the historical stage would seem pretty unstable, right? Zedekiah, or Jehoahaz, after the, king, after the, the death of Josiah, Jehoahaz reigns for three months. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years. And then the Babylonians come in and conquer. They, they beat up the Egyptians and the, uh, the nation of Judah. They t- carry off a bunch of captives. And then Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, reigns for another three months. He gets taken off to Babylon. And then uh, Zedekiah is reigning. And now we f- find this time of Zedekiah. So the point in all that, if it seems like, you know, a Shakespeare play where there's like moving parts all over the place, it is. And that's the point. It seems like it's an unstable time. Okay? During that time, God shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs. And figs throughout the Bible, some people um, make a point of this, are kind of uh, oftentimes used as a metaphor of uh, the people of Israel. Okay? And so there's two baskets of figs. And so um, keep that in mind here. One, the first, he says, one basket had very good figs, like the figs that are the first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Okay? So everybody got this? There's two baskets of figs. One good, one bad, right? Any problem with that? One good, one bad. Can I point out, there's no medium basket of figs. There's no kind of good basket of figs. And I just want to take that opportunity to bring about, that's kind of a consistent theme of Scripture, right? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, how many roads are there? There's two. There's the narrow road that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And there's the broad road that leads to destruction, and many go that way. And I don't know about you, I've said this before, 
in my life, there have been many times in my life I kind of was like, man, I wish there was like a middle road where I could kind of have fun but kind of know that I'm going to heaven when I die and kind of live for God and kind of live for me and kind of get what I want when I want it, and which is now, and uh, how I want it. And I want to really kind of just orchestrate my own life and then go to heaven. That's the middle road, right? Anybody ever been looking for that road? Anybody ever spent any time, any time in your life looking for that road? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, it's not in the Scripture. It's not in the Scripture. And I think there's a principle there. Now, I'm not going to get into whether that means if you're looking for the middle road, you're not going to heaven or whatever like that, honestly. What our purposes here are, I'm not going to talk about whether or not the middle road person goes to heaven because none of us want the middle road. None of us want the middle road. Because part of what I said in that middle road was I want to have fun, right? Can I tell you something? There's no fun in the middle road. There's misery in the middle road. We'll talk about that as we go. The middle road is a miserable road. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But there's two baskets, one good and one bad. If you've seen good fruit, it's awesome. If you see bad fruit, it's nasty, right? And so kind of a little bit of a no-brainer. And just to point out that it's a no-brainer, then the Lord said to me, verse 3, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs. The good figs, very good. And the bad, very bad, which cannot be eating. eaten. They're so bad, right? So Jeremiah sort of engages in this obvious uh, uh, observation with the Lord. And again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away, from ca- carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That sounds awesome. Let me back up again to the historical context. I said the whole historical context was crazy. By this time, Babylon has conquered the, the nation of Judah twice. They've got their puppet king Zedekiah in place. He's going to reign for 11 years before he's finally killed and the nation is destroyed. But it seems kind of like unstable and, you know, the captives have, car- have been carried away twice and now we're just trying to rebuild our, our homeland and we're talking about Jerusalem, right? And if you know anything about Jewish history, there's a lot of sort of patriotic pride, right, in our homeland, our people, our God, our Old Testament Scripture, our prophets, our, you know, even though we're idol worshipers, you know, we're not idol worshipers like they are, right? We're good idol worshipers, right? Because we're Jews. We're not Gentiles like dogs. We're good idol worshipers. And we love our national pride and we love our heritage and all of that kind of stuff. And the reason I bring that up is because I think, and again, I don't want to draw too much of this, okay? But I think we'd be negligent not to at least point it out. We live in a Christian nation founded, frankly, again, you know, I just, sometimes as I get older, I think back on those years of school when I was just trying to, you know, get an A on the test. (laughs) That was all I cared about. But I think back on, like, the American Revolution, right? Like a bunch of guys in funny hats hiding in the bushes going up against probably the most powerful army in the world and they win, right? God shed his grace on thee. Yes. Yes. Big time. Big time. I mean, just the, the fact that we are not British today, is a miracle. 
And as we look at all of that, right, we gotta, we gotta come to grips with the fact that God established this nation. Not unlike God marches the Jews into, into the promised land and the walls of Jericho fall down. I mean, honestly, the fall of the British army is not too much different than the fall of the walls of Jericho. And yet, fast forward a few centuries. I mean, please don't get me wrong. I love my country. I'm thankful that I live here the whole bit, right? But are there aspects of it whereby we've sort of become idol worshipers and we act like it's okay because we're like American idol worshipers? And that's different than European idol worshipers, right? We're not as sinful as the Europeans, and so therefore we're okay. You see the parallels? And I think there's some pretty striking parallels. And so anyway, back to Jewish history. They thought they were good because of all this. And God tells them, hey, by the way, your brethren that got carried off to Babylon, those guys are in a good place. If you're in the Jewish mindset and you're living in Jerusalem at this time, that would tweak your brain big time. That, oh, by the way, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, by this time Ezekiel, those guys are living in Babylon, right? And you think, those guys are, wait a minute, those guys are prisoners. They're prisoners of war. God says, those guys are in a good place. Those are the good figs. By the way, how many baskets of figs were there? Two. One was good. One was bad, very bad. So bad they could not be eaten. And God just got done saying, the good figs are the ones over there in Babylon. Verse 8. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem. You know, I don't know about you, I would hate to be described as residue, right? The residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will deliver them to trouble in all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I shall send a sword, the sword, the famine and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. So what do you see here? This would be totally counterintuitive. This would be a time when they're trying to rebuild their national peace, their national identity. The, the Babylonians have conquered them twice. They're trying to rebuild, restructure, shore up everything. And Jeremiah sends them this, this horribly discouraging prophecy that the good figs are the ones over there in Babylon and the bad figs are the ones here in Jerusalem. What's God trying to do? What's God trying to do? He's trying to warn his people. He's trying to warn his people. Why does God, whenever you're trying to figure out what God is doing in the scripture, can I just encourage us this? Always go back to what do we know about the character of God? Because the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what do we know about the character of God? Does God enjoy delivering punishment to his people? No. But is he just? Does he deliver punishment? Yeah, yeah. And so what, what we see in terms of the heart of God is warning, 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 repeatedly. And that's the heart of what we're seeing here in Jeremiah. I mean, hopefully, I mean, we've been reading 24 chapters of Jeremiah, right? Have we read a little bit of warning from Jeremiah? Repent. The message is to repent. It's not to, like, make good people better. It's to repent. Yeah. It's not to make, like, Jewish idol worshipers, like, cleaner than Gentile idol worshipers. It's to repent. And so what God is saying is he's trying to give them a very graphic image. The bad figs are the ones stuck here in Jerusalem doing the same old thing, worshiping the same old idols and neglecting him. National pride can be a barrier to repentance. Religious pride can be a barrier to repentance. Let that not be said of us. Chapter 25, he goes on, the word of the Lord 
that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in now the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. So remember, Jehoiakim was the second son. Chapter 24, we read about during the reign of Zedekiah. Chapter 24, we're reading about during the reign of Jehoiakim. So this predates chapter 24, which is why I went through all of that, because it is otherwise confusing. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, this would now be 605 B.C. This is the time of the first uh, deportation of slaves, of captives, back to Babylon. So in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying... So this is the first year Babylon overcomes Egypt. They haul off a bunch of Jewish uh, captives. Now Jehoiakim becomes, changes from being the puppet king of Egypt to the puppet king of Babylon. So that's the context there. So what does he say? Verse 3. From the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is now the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. Now let me just pause for a second there. What's your definition of hard work? What's your definition of fruitful, effective ministry? What's your definition of faithfulness, right? These are all things I have to reflect on, right? I think in terms of like ministry stuff. We always think of effective ministry. Effective ministry is, is, is measurable, right, in our world today by two things. What are they? Money and people, right? That's how we measure ministry, money and people. And it's fundamentally wrong, right? It's fundamentally wrong. And what I love here, and I always go back to this, and many of you have heard me say this before. You know, when Jesus there at Caesarea Philippi, he said, hey, who, you guys, who do people say that I am? Right? Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. So there's something about Jesus Christ that made people think, that guy reminds me of Jeremiah. Was he an effective minister? Okay, let me, re- let me rephrase it. If I said, you remind me of Jesus, would we call you an effective minister? Yes. 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 Come on, give me a yes. Give me a Susie yes. yes. That's what I'm talking about. Jeremiah was a very effective minister. How many numbers? Zero. Zero. Not one recorded convert in the ministry of Jeremiah after 52 chapters of it. And even now, you're, some of you are saying, you mean we're going to go through 52 chapters of this? <laughs> and I'm saying yes. <laughs> 52 chapters of this. With a break for Christmas next week, by the way. So you come out for that, okay? He went, by this point in time, he's gone 23 years. 23 years. And it was hard work. It would have seemed impossible, but it was faithful. It was faithful. And let me just say this, because here's the deal. Very few, if any of us, will ever have any kind of front page news kind of life that, you know, I doubt that they'll build statues of us and, you know, whatever. But we can all be faithful to whatever it is that God has called us to do. And it doesn't have to be measured the way the world measures it, but it has to be measured in terms of faithfulness to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful, not successful, not prosperous, not whatever you fill in the blank, but faithful. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be faithful stewards of the life that God has given us. Simple as that. He's given us a fixed number of years on this earth. He's given us space and time. He's put us in this world 
for such a time as this. He's allowed us to live through a pandemic for some reason. He's allowed us to be at this place in this time in history for such a time as this, just like Esther was the queen of Israel for such a time as this. And our job is to be faithful at that to the end. And if we never make headlines over it, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How cool is that? That's very cool. (sighs) As I would tell my kids. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you've not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. I went back and did an inventory. By this point in history, they've heard from Isaiah, from Hosea. Isaiah had 66 chapters, by the way. So you've made it through Isaiah. You can probably make it through Jeremiah. Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Those are cool guys. You know what they all said? They all pretty much said the exact same thing. Pretty much one word starts with re and ends in pent. Right? Same thing John the Baptist said. Repent. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early. They were faithful. Rising early and sending them, but you've not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, you know what they said? Repent. Now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And I will not harm you. I want to not harm you is what he would say. I want to not harm you. So therefore, repent. Don't talk to me about your national pride. Don't talk to me about what happened to the walls of Jericho. Don't talk to me about you're you're better idol worshipers than the Gentiles. Repent. And interestingly, what's Jesus say when he comes on the scene? Don't tell me you're you're children of Abraham. That's not going to do you any good unless you repent. So what he's saying here is, I don't want to harm you. So repent, and I will not harm you. Yet, you've not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. To your own hurt. So the message is always the same. Repent. Old Testament message is repent. New Testament message, repent. That's always the human responsibility in our relationship with God. And again, notice that God's desire is that he will not harm us. He always wants to restore. He's always motivated by love. And he says, yet you've not listened to me. And that always leads, quote, to your own hurt. Can I tell you this? I was thinking about this this week. Samson thought he knew what would be best for him, for himself. Man, that Delilah, she rocks. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? That Delilah, there's something special about her, Right? Samson thought he knew what was best for him. How'd that turn out for him? Very bad. Right? Saul thought that, you know, if he could just knock out David and, like, be on top of the kingdom, kind of run the kingdom the way he wants to run it, everything would be awesome. How'd that turn out? Very badly. Solomon thought, you know what? Samson's problem was he only had one woman that he was focused on. I'm going to learn from history and try a thousand women. I think that's going to work out better for me. How'd that work out for Solomon? Very badly. Very badly. Seriously, you could trace idol worship in the nation of Israel back to Solomon. That's a legacy I wouldn't want to have. I would not want that legacy. But you can trace idol worship back to Solomon. Pretty scary. Judas thought 30 pieces of silver would make his life all good. How'd that work out for him? You know, God says, repent, and I will not harm you. And if you don't, then it'll be what? To your own hurt. 
to your own hurt. Can I tell you something? That middle road I was talking about earlier, there's the broad road that leads to destruction. There's the narrow road that leads to life. There's the middle road. If you want to try to, you know, keep pointing at Connie because she's right down that middle road. So sorry. Um, there's that middle road. You know, sometimes we try to pave our own middle road. Right? And let me just say, nothing good happens in that middle road. It's the road of consequence. It's the road of trying to f- remember who you lied to and who you didn't. And it's the road of, of baggage and, and just, just, it's a mess. It's a mess. So when we do not listen to the Lord, it leads to our own hurt. Please, please, please notice that message from the Scripture. Verse 8, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, that's from Babylon, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so, again, you got national pride. You think there's a distinction between your flavor of idol worship and the Gentiles, and the ultimate horrendous low-life Gentile pagan, sinful nation in the world is Babylon. And God says, I'm going to bring them and destroy your national pride. And I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Right? My servant. So, he's using Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes. And His purposes are they're going to bring desolation and then they're going to carry off all the people and they're going to be captive for 70 years. Interestingly, the 70 years idea, you know, God, when when they first came into the promised land, God said, I want you to give the land a Sabbath rest every seven years. You cultivate all the crops you want, do your thing for six years, and on the seventh year, I want you to give it a rest. And if you do that faithfully, then you've got to do it by faith. In the sixth year, I'm going to give you enough uh, produce, enough uh, prosperity to get you through for that dormant year. Okay? They never did that. They never did that. And so, is God's Word always meticulously carried out? Yeah, it is. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, we won't turn there says that this 70 years of Sabbath was, quote, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the Israelites came into the promised land. They conquered. They did their thing. God said, I want you to give the land uh, uh, a Sabbath rest every seven years. They never did that because they wanted to operate life the way they wanted to operate it. God said, no, I said, I want the land to have a a Sabbath rest. And so according to Chronicles, God gave them 70 years of of makeup time that the land would be rested for 70 years during that time that they're captive in in Babylon. And so, again, God's word always fulfills. Now, you could do the math. Uh, Some say that means they were in in the land for 490 years. The math doesn't exactly work out that way, at least the way I try to calculate it. But anyway, it may be that it's just a, a picture, right? But the idea is there's an, there's an idea there that in God's mind, he wanted them to have some re- that land to have some rest, so he gave it 70 years of rest to fulfill the Sabbath obligation. Verse 12. Then it'll come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So we just said Babylon was the instrument of God. Nebuchadnezzar was his servant. This is another concept that I think is important. When the Babylonians conquered, 
You ever notice this? Sometimes when maybe, let's say person A needs to be punished by God. So God brings person B. Person B executes God's punishment on person A, but person B seems to enjoy it a little too much. You ever notice? Anybody ever have kids? Right? Person B kind of said, you know, there's a word, there's a song <clears throat> when our kids were very young that we laid, the, we laid the ground rules early on. There is a song that will not be sung in this family. Anybody know what the song is? Na 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 na. Right? I just executed vengeance on you or judgment on you or mom's will on you. Na 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 na. Guess what that's going to get you? Uh, to your own hurt. That's what that's going to get you. Right? And so the Babylonians, they came in, they conquered, they were God's instruments, but they said na 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 kind of as they went. George Washington said this, I love this. George Washington, speaking of it, we kind of got a patriotic theme going today, right? George Washington said, be not glad at the misfortune of another, though he may be your enemy. Can I tell you that? Be not glad at the misfortune of another, though he may be your enemy. And I think that speaks to us us as Christians, as Bible-believing, trying to live faithfully according to the Word of God. Sometimes we see God uh, deliver a consequence, a sowing and reaping thing to somebody that's not following the Lord. And there might be a temptation in us to be just a little pompous about that. Does that make sense? And whenever we're a little pompous about that, you know what we forget? That we're sinners saved by grace. So don't ever forget that we're sinners saved by grace. Uh, because otherwise we find ourselves singing na-na-na-na-na-na. That didn't work out well for the Babylonians. And so God says, at the end of that 70 years, I'm going to then punish them. I'm going to then punish them. Sure enough, this comes, and we read this uh, uh, on the book of Daniel and elsewhere, that, uh, that the Medes and Persians came in um, after 70 years, and sure enough, they thumped the Babylonians. But I want to point out one other thing, and you don't need to turn there if you don't want, but uh, over to the right, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, I would be remiss to not point this out. I've said it a million times. Prophecy is fulfilled in the Scripture primarily, I mean, not always, There's, there are metaphors in the Scripture, but prophecy is fulfilled primarily in a literal sense, okay? And I say that because we've got prophecy yet unfulfilled in the Bible, right? And so when we look to that, we need to look, I believe we're going to see uh, a literal, uh, the world is going to see, let's put it that way, I think the world is going to see a literal temple built in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's in the scripture. Uh, we're going to see, uh, the world is going to see the Antichrist go into that temple halfway through the great tribulation. And some of those things, and I think some of the, some of the things that are described in the, in the book of Revelation regarding the great, great Tribulation, I think they're going to be fulfilled literally. Why do I think that? Because a lot of prophecy has been fulfilled thus far, right? Was Jesus born of a virgin? Yeah. Was he born in Bethlehem? Yeah, we've talked about this before, right? But furthermore, I think one of the best Bible students I could ever think of in all of history, would be Daniel. Fair enough? Daniel, I love this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, so Darius would have been, uh, well, it says, of the lineage of the Medes, so they were the ones that conquered uh, the Babylonians, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So, back to Jeremiah. Daniel, a pretty cool Bible student, right? said, you know, I'm, in, I'm sitting over here captive since 605 B.C., and we've been hanging out, and I've been doing the math, and, you know, it seems like we've been captive for about, oh, I don't know, 69 and a half years. And I happened to read the scroll of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, we're going to be here for about 70 years. So I think I'm going to start praying for our return, right? 
How did Daniel interpret prophecy? Very literally. 70 years to Daniel meant 70 years, right? And so just as a matter of principle, how we read uh, prophecy, we'd probably do well to read it like Daniel did. Um, so anyway, uh, so sure enough, God says, after 70 years, I'm going to bring, bring everybody back. And then he goes in uh, chapter, verse 15 to the rest of this chapter, which we're going to read briefly. Uh, he goes into a little bit of a kind of a move toward the tribulation, if you will. So for thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand. So like we mentioned earlier, the, the, the cup here is a picture of fury, of God's wrath. And cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So the nations are going to drink the wrath of God. Okay? And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink. So this would be, you know, how this plays out some metaphorically. Uh, so obviously God's not, Jeremiah is not taking a cup. I don't know, maybe he was taking a cup from the Lord, but delivering it to, he's now delivering it to future event, future hands, nations. So, to whom the Lord had sent me, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing and a curse, as it is to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, uh, Edom, Moab, and the people of the Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the, and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam and all the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, all the kings, also the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Therefore you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink and be drunk, vomit, Fall and, fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you, and it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name, and should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. So notice this, on all the inhabitants of the earth. So I believe we're talking about the tribulation period at which time God deals with all of the inhabitants of the earth. But just to point this out, every individual, God deals with us as individuals, does he not? If we'd have been the only person that ever existed on earth as a, as a person born into sin, right, Jesus would have died on a cross for us individually. God, gives, God deals with us all individually. God somehow, in the midst of that, also deals with nations, right? God rises up nations. God overthrows nations. Again, as I said earlier, I believe God established the, na the nation of America, right? God overthrows the Babylonians to the Medes and Persians. God overthrows the Medes and Persians to the Greeks, and on and on and on throughout history, God deals with nations. And there's a time, I believe, yet future, and uh, this is described in a little more detail in Ezekiel, where many nations are going to come against Israel, and who's on Israel's side? God is. God is. And those nations are going to be defeated. And we're going to see God dealing with, quote, all the inhabitants of the earth, all the nations of the earth. Uh, God is going to, to deal with them and execute judgment. And no longer will there be like, uh, kind of like this thing between the Egyptians and the Babylonians or the Assyrians and the Babylonians, like who's in charge, like who's the dominant empire, right? There's not going to be any more like who's the dominant empire because God is going to come back at the end of the Great Tribulation period. Uh, Jesus will set foot on planet Earth, uh, establish a millennial kingdom, and Jesus himself will be the king of that kingdom for a thousand years on Earth, right? There'll be no, no dialogue about who's in charge, Right? Therefore, prophesy against them all these words and say to them, 
The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against, again, all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Refuse on the ground. And so again, likely reference to the great tribulation. um, And the details here are outlined through Revelation chapter 6 through 18. And so God will administer punishment. God will deal with with those who've rejected him. And uh, God's wrath, God's judgment is very real. God's grace is also very real. And we get to be the recipients of that. And um, because of the blood of Jesus, these things don't apply to us. Praise the Lord. But they're real. They're real. Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in ashes, you leaders of the flock. Again, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, we think of shepherds like in a spiritual context exclusively, but shepherds probably in this context with Jeremiah, he's talking about the leaders of the nation, like the political leaders. Wail, shepherds. Wail, political leaders. Wail, King Zedekiah. And cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. So the near fulfillment of this is Zedekiah himself is going to reject God, reject God, reject God. Jeremiah, we're going to read lots of verses about Jeremiah trying to plead with Zedekiah to repent. Zedekiah is going to have plenty of opportunity to repent. He will refuse. And then finally in 586 B.C., the Babylonians are going to come in after a year and a half of, of a siege around the city. And, and Zedekiah himself is going to try to escape. But guess what? And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. So Zedekiah uh, winds up getting captured outside of the city gates. Uh, the last thing he sees is the murder of his sons. And then they gouge out his eyes, carry him off to Babylon where he spends the rest of his life. That's the fate of Zedekiah. So that's the near fulfillment. The far fulfillment is, you know, all the leaders. I think about, you know, and no disrespect to anybody. But, you know, Psalm 2 talks about the nations. Why do the nations rage, right? It's again quoted in the book of Acts. Why do the nations rage? Like, and, the, and people plot a vain thing. Basically, the rulers of the world think they're in charge, right? Is that anything new? No. Did Caesar Augustus, while we're thinking about Christmas, did Caesar Augustus think he's in charge when he wants to get uh, a tax on the, on the whole Roman world? Yeah, he thought he was in charge. What was he doing? He was fulfilling prophecy because you've got to get a pregnant woman down to Bethlehem. Right? And we've talked about this before. Ladies, your last couple weeks of pregnancy, your husband says, yo, let's take a trip to Bethlehem. <laughs> right? You're going to say, No. You can be the most supportive wife imaginable, but you're going to say no, right? And so Augustus is just a pawn in the prophetic hand of the Lord, right? And in times yet future, right, there's going to be lots of world leaders, shepherds, if you will, thinking they're in charge, pawns in the prophetic hand. A voice of the cry of the shepherds, verse 36, and a wailing of the leaders, to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like a lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. So what do you see? God's going to hold the leaders accountable for their damaging influence, for their complete rejection of him, and yet along the way, I want us to see this. God's heart is to restore. God paid the price of sending Jesus Christ to earth to live live a perfect life and then suffer the wrath of God for us in our place. 
because he wanted to restore the relationship with us. And along the way, even as we, or as people on earth reject the Lord, what do we see? Warning, 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 warning. And yet God's justice is real. And there is a point at which time, after the last warning, right, that God knows that he could, if, he could issue a million more warnings and their response would be the same. And so that's when judgment comes. That's when judgment comes. So God is so just that sin has to be dealt with and punished. And as it applies to us, the punishment came through Jesus. Our responsibility regarding sin is to repent. And just please know the heart of God. The heart of God is to restore. And He loves His people. He loves His people. He knows these things are real, that are coming. And He wants us to know so that we can repent. Is God good? Is God good? God is very good. God is very good. Please don't ever lose sight of that. You know, sometimes we talk, you hear people talk about, well, there's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Have you ever heard this? God of the New Testament's loving. God of the Old Testament's mad. No. He's the same yesterday, today, forever, right? He's got to administer justice because he's just. But that God of the Old Testament is the same as that God of the New Testament, and he loves his children. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you love us so much that you would send Jesus for us so that we could escape the cup of your wrath. Lord, help us never to lose sight of that. Help us never lose sight of that. And Lord, help us to um, help us to be your ambassadors in this world even today as you've placed us in this world, in this community for such a time as this that we could be your ambassadors. That we could express the heart of God who loves his children and who doesn't want to harm his children. Lord, help us to be those people who rightly express who you are and help us to be faithful stewards. Lord, we know that this this life, this stewardship, can be tiresome at times. It can be weary. And yet we know that Jeremiah, even by this time, has been doing it for 23 years, faithfully. So we know that the precedent has been set, that it's possible for a human being to be faithful despite all odds for the duration of his life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, you would give us that diligence and that faithfulness that we could carry out your will faithfully. So please have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us. Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.